Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. This week, we have our own Tim Ryan, who is a senior fellow with our Space Power Center of Excellence, and Doug Berkey, Mitchell's executive director, to discuss Mitchell's latest report, The Indispensable Domain, The Critical Role of Space in JADC2. And Tim was the author of this effort and really been making a lot of news in DC and beyond. And I think the reason for this is simple. Everyone talks about JADC2 in really sweeping terms, but Tim actually succeeded in breaking it down into some understandable building blocks. And of course, there are times in development of any new concept when we need to pump the brakes and simply try to get everyone on the same page regarding what we're trying to do as a defense enterprise and think about why it matters. And that's what Tim did when it came to discussing space's role in JADC2. He also pushed pretty aggressively in tackling notions of offensive and defensive space capabilities, something a lot of us know is critical, but many are unwilling to discuss because it makes waves in the current policy world. But here's the deal. If we understand JADC2 is going to be critical and space is a key domain for certain functions, our adversaries get this too, and they are going to hold our space enterprise at risk. In fact, we know they are already doing this, so it's time to get real and start treating space like we do every other domain by considering it offensive and defensive when it comes to principles. And we're not advocating for conflict in space. In fact, quite the opposite. What we believe is holding adversary systems at risk is one of the best ways of deterring hostile action. Failing to impose a penalty for extending conflict into space An enemy has no reason to hold back. This is deterrence 101 type of stuff, but it seems lost on a lot of people these days, so we are trying to fill the void by bringing some of these sorts of conversations to the public realm. All right, so with that, Tim, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks so much, Slick. And of course, Doug, always great to have you on the show. Hey, man, great to be here. Thank you. Okay, so Tim, before we jump into the paper, I just want to give you a chance to introduce yourself to the audience. You've been with us since the summer, but this is the first time we've had you on the podcast, so give some folks insight into your background in space operations. Yeah, hey, thanks a lot, Slick. So I retired in 2021 after 28 years in the Air Force. I spent 18 of those in various space assignments. I've operated several weapon systems over that time, uh, from Minuteman 3 to the Sibbers missile warning satellites. I've got some NRO time and MILSATCOM time. Also had the opportunity to be on the Air Force Space Command IG and Joint Staff. Uh, got the opportunity to go downrange and be on the CENTCOM Director of Space Forces Staff during the rise of ISIS. But really, of course, my two biggest highlights were being the Director of Operations at the NRO's Overhead Collection Management Center and being the commander of the largest and in my opinion, and many others, the greatest space operations squadron, the fourth space operations squadron out in Shriver Space Force Base in Colorado. Awesome. Well, of course, thanks for your service. It's always great to be among veterans and retirees with the the experience that you bring to the table. And, you know, it's awesome to see the Mitchell team really grow with this sort of experience. And, and Doug, I got to have you pitch in here and just ask you directly, why did you and the Mitchell leadership team task Tim with this uh, report right out of the gate? 
Yeah. You know, when we talk about joint all domain command and control, I think first it's important to define it. And this is a really key element because it's so technical so fast that it's easy to get lost in the wiring diagram, so to speak, and the, how the electrons flow and, and all of that. And what it really comes down to is something as age old as, as military you know, combat going back to the beginning, whenever that occurred. And it's really the notion of how do you get good information to make the best decisions possible with the available forces you have, both to get your job done and stay out of harm's way so you don't get clobbered unintentionally. And so given that kind of opener for, for what this is in an ultra macro level, this really came to the fold in the late 20-teens when China started to pop up on the radar as the major dominating pacing threat for the United States military forces. Prior to that, we were focused very much on operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then all of a sudden, we began to take a broader view. And we realized that so many of the investments that we had made to get us through those fights in Iraq and Afghanistan had actually diluted and shrunk the very forces that we needed to dominate against China. And so by that, I mean things like the F-22 or slowing down the F-35 buy rate, certain logistical elements across the board. I, I can just keep going on this. All the areas that matter today are where we took risk for the last 20 years. And so commanders were left trying to fight war games and everything else with too few of everything. And so it became very, very clear we needed to understand the battle space as best possible to put the available assets we had in the right time and place to best net the desired effect, whether it's getting a bomb on target or executing air superiority, you name it. And we also, like I said earlier, needed to stay out of harm's way. You don't want to run a flight of B-21s right over top of the worst, you know, sand battery ever invented, not smart. And so another element there, and this is a bit new and afforded by technology, is this notion of teaming. It's that through networks, we can have disparate assets that are not co-located in any terms we would really think about, separated by hundreds of miles quite often, come together at a given time and place to best net a combined effect. So it could be pulling satellite data that is going to aircraft overhead that are helping cue a missile coming off of a ship that's, you know, offshore. That was very difficult to do in the past, if not impossible. The technology now, the, the links and all is there, but it really comes down to this, this information dominance that we've got in play. And then you overlay the factor that we're looking at the Pacific, and that is such a massive region, it dilutes what was already a small force even further. And so it really drove home the need, right time, right place, for what few assets we had to best net the objectives. And, and that's really kind of the imperative that launched this thing, is that commanders had a huge problem ahead of them, and they didn't have the tools they really needed to get the job done the way they'd always done it. And so they had to get smarter. And so that's what has been the imperative here all along. And, and I agree with that. I think it is essential. And I, I do believe in this vector. Yeah. You know, it's funny, something that you said, Doug, you know, especially being tied up for 20 
years in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, I always argue it's, it's really been a, 10 years before that because we never left the Middle East when we went there for the first Gulf War, supporting the, uh, at least the Air Force didn't, the Southern and the Northern no-fly zones. But so much has happened in space where that has become a domain, right? So, Tim, obviously you get this assignment that uh, Doug and the leadership have have had you focus on. And I ma- imagine writing this paper had to be really daunting. That's a hugely complex vision that the Department of Defense has laid out. And the final answer is far from clear. So how did you get your head around what your your research was and ultimately the paper? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. You can imagine taking these on and, you know, something small, just taking space in JADC2 and figuring out how we're going to be able to utilize it. We so. like you to have you boil that ocean right away, Tim. It takes a while. <laughs> exactly. So I, I got to be honest with you, in, in many regards, the way I, I first started to look at it was, you know, you take... Uh, John Boyd's classic OODA loop, right? You apply it to modern warfare, cross a joint force with the attributes of the information age that we live in. And and so when, you, when I start to take that view of it, I started to develop and I've, and I've got it on some of the slides that, that I've briefed out on this is, you know, almost a triangle of taking the ability of these different sensors, taking the processing power, you have to have humor actors in the decision sphere somewhere to understand that battle space and then knitting it together by a robust communication layer. So I tried to break it down, right, for for an operator like me to the simplest ways to be able to look at it. You know, so we need to be able to collect the information from any sensor, any domain, rapidly transmit it across vast physical distances, process it, be able to support dynamic battle management and increase the commander's decision time, make sure that gets the right information, right warfighter at the right time to achieve the desired effect. Oh, Oh, by the way, all at a global scale. So no big deal. And so you start to kind of piece all of that together. I chose to be able to look at it from a from a Pacific, from our pacing threat, if you will, to be able to, to scale it back and, and not take off that big of a bite. So I took the scale, the scope of the Pacific region. You pair that with the nature of the Chinese threat. And all of a sudden, it, it's pretty clear we need a new generation of sensors to gather the data necessary to be able to empower that smart decision-making that we're talking about. We need to have the processors to be able to turn that into actual decision level information to be able to execute at the right time, right place. The only way you're going to be able to do that, it's got to be underpinned by a resilient, robust layer to transport across that data. Doug kind of just talked about it. Just looking at it from Indo-PACOM, that is enormous. Large swaths of water, 52% uh, you know, of, of the Earth's surface. So we've got to be able to, to get data from the front all the way back to an AOC or another C2 node somewhere in the rear. And to be able to do that at speed and scale, that's the imperative that we start to look at. That is essential if you're going to understand this concept. And it really begins with gathering that data with sensors. And by that, we mean raw data. It it has not been turned into actionable information. So it is on that transport layer to the top of the triangle where you really translate that data into decision quality information. And you do that both with human and, and machine types of skills. And then again, another part of the comm layer, it goes to how do you actually net an effect with it? And so there's command and control involved there, but it also could be a ship or, or an aircraft or, or ground forces that are actually executing a mission effect. And so that triangle is all stitched together with those comm links, but those centers of gravity are really important and it's fundamental to understand Raw data is not the same as processed, actionable information. And we need to be sure we don't conflate that. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, again, when we start to talk about and looking at it from what does space bring to that, 
there's also a sensor piece to it, and that includes systems that can penetrate or, you know, see or sense deep behind the enemy lines, be able to provide that persistent observation, while at the same time, the force protection and defense coverage that's going to be needed outside of contested lines as well, and not being able to just do one end or the other that we kind of see with, with airborne and maritime sensors that we have today. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more from what both of you said, but Tim, as you know, here at Mitchell, we're a huge fan of history. So were there any examples of past scenarios that help you get your head around your research? No, hey, so appreciate that. You know, Doug and I had a lot of fun, and I and I air quote fun having discussion and, and kind of coming up with different examples on this. But you know, World War One, you, you take a look at that. That's that's your classic no information network. We launched large mass of of aircraft out looking for other aircraft for the enemy to be able to to destroy it. And so that's straight up brute force on brute force without a lot of information driving them to the right place, right time, and any effect. Now, you, you flash forward a little bit, and you look at the Battle of Britain. Now, all of a sudden, you've got an information-driven enterprise. Let me talk to you about that. So you, you take a look at that. That's how information decision superiority can be a deciding factor in conflict is what we see there. So you have an outnumbered RAF. They're going, going up against a much larger massing German Air Force, utilizing their radars to collect the data. They then take that data they process it in actionable information and relay it back to the air crews through the C2 channels of the day. Bottom line, now you have a system that allows for posturing of fighter aircraft at the right time and place to defend the homeland while avoiding the zones of risk. Doug talked about that a little bit ago. That's exactly what we're looking to be able to do. Right time, right place, right warfighter, right shooter, if you will, to be able to have the desired effect that you want, but you also want to be able to avoid those zones of risks and being able to take that information in and being able to process it and putting it back out. So that's kind of the, the historical, historical view that we looked at from building this. We, I mean, I definitely could see where you make those connections. So what happens when we bring this forward into the modern era? Yeah, I think it's a zone where actually all the building block elements that Tim outlined with Battle Britain, in many ways, they still exist from a, a big picture effect perspective. It's just that technology has made everything so much more powerful. So back then, you had the chain home radars, you had ground observers collecting this data. Well, now you've got tremendously powerful sensors with a variety of systems. You know, Obviously, just look at the power that, that an ESA radar on, on a fighter has today, my gosh. You then look at the comms networks that we have in their global networks. They're unbelievably sophisticated. And the processing power, obviously, is huge in terms of the mass quantity of data that it can process through to, to give you that decision quality information. And then you look at all the decision aids we have in a command center and all of that. So it's just far bigger and more potent, and it's faster because you can really churn through this stuff in split-second timing. Now, I think the challenge here, though, is, and I said this earlier, People get tripped up on the sophistication of the technology, and it is always important to take this to kind of first-order principles, and, and that's why that model's important, the historical analogy is important. This is not new. We've been doing this for decades, and this is how forces have won for decades. And guess what? We are now the Royal Air Force facing that huge German Luftwaffe kind of scenario in China. We've got very few assets, you know, less than 200 F-22s, not nearly enough F-35s. We've got 20 B-2s until B-52 
comes online. I mean, we've got to maximize the, the utility we're getting out of these. And and so that's that's where it all comes into play, but it really is kind of that first order approach to it. I think there are questions of protocol, and we'll get to this later in a conversation, but with these new technologies, it does open up new approaches. Just because you can technologically, does it make sense in terms of kind of good organizational behaviors and all of that? Because we're now in a, an era of global connectivity, but we'll get to that later. Yeah, no, and I was going to say, you know, you, you mentioned just how vastly different. And so literally, I want to bring Tim in on talking about how space affects us and understand where it fits and what are the functions you think we're going to execute on when it, we're talking about being on orbit when it comes to JADC2 and why? Yeah, now, let me be clear. Warfighting in the space domain will determine the outcome of future conflicts. This is a really, really simple concept. Success in war and I write about this in the paper. It's going to go to the side that possesses the superior battle space knowledge and is able to make the decisions more effectively and more efficiently and closes those kill chains faster. Now, technologies on orbit are pivotal. It secures this advantage, and especially when we are talking about what we talked about in this paper, which is the sensors and the connectivity. I talked about this when I did the rollout, and I think that this is an important point. This concept that we talk about, JADC2, that is not a singular programmer capability. It comes down to being able to utilize the right mix of capabilities to be able to get that relevant information to each warfighter at the right time at a global scale. Now, when you take a look at that, really, honestly, only the space domain can move the information at the speed, size, and range required of an effective JADC2 architecture. We've talked about it. A couple times now, just in the podcast, when we talk about just Indopaycom's AOR, it's enormous. 100 million square miles. I think I mentioned it earlier. It's like 52% of the Earth's surface. This is clearly going to require some teaming for operational success. We've got to be able to focus on movement and maneuver across the vast distances, operate dispersed locations that, quite frankly, they're going to be, just to be able to be minimally survivable, those forces are probably going to be separated by hundreds or thousands of miles of water. Simple map look drives us that way. So in other words, we're going to need the data to be collected, processed, moved at speed, scale, and range to be able to enable those warfighters. Oh, by the way, let's make no mistake, all the while we're trying to be able to do this and get this set up, the enemy is going to be doing everything in its power to disrupt those functions. All right, Tim, no, I, I do appreciate that. And I really want to dig into some more by beginning with data collection. How do we do this today? And how do you see the future of JADC2 or the JADC2 world executing it in the future? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I think it's important to maybe look at it from a couple different vantage points, if you will, primarily strategic, operational, and tactical. Strategic decision-making, as we know, that demands a level of data that you can now make these big picture assessments. And so it, it's a lot of data that is needed for those decision-making processes. Operational users, while well, that demand is going to be a little bit you know, smaller as far as what they want, they want things that are going to inform the plans. It can be developed over days, maybe even hours. Tactical users, users excuse me, they need that to be able to flow in within minutes and seconds to be able to, to execute. So the enterprise with satellites and the other pieces of information and sensing data are going to be more attuned to that big picture strategic level from a data requirement, but you need to be able to think of things going all the way to a, a targeting pod on a fighter or a bomber that can kind of shape those minute-to-minute -minute level actions. So there's obviously an overlap between those platforms and the demand signals are there. 
So generally speaking, we've got data collectors on orbit. There's manned aircraft like the U-2, unmanned counterparts like Global Hawk or sensor shooters like MQ-9s. You take that, you combine the sensor and command and control systems at the AWACS or JSTARS platforms, and now all of a sudden you can see how this whole concept works. Now, if you look at that list, it's clear that the current model depends on getting a lot of aircraft over the enemy territory to get the insights we want for all the different users. Let's be honest here. If you put aside the 5th gen F-35s, F-22s, and B-21s, that's really not a solid bet. And again, Doug alluded to this a little bit earlier. Just look at the buys that we've had on those 5th gen aircraft. Clearly, there's not enough of them in the inventory to be able to do that. So most of our airborne sensors, they're going to be driven back far away from where we want them to be. So what do we got to be able to do? Put sensors in space. It offers a unique value proposition. You can have them not only looking deep behind enemy lines, but they're also going to be able to provide force protection and defense data that is going to be needed for the maritime and the airborne assets that will be flying outside of that area. So you need to be able to have now a demand signal that needs all of that information as it's provided, and you cannot flood that zone with with existing systems that we have today. Well, Tim, you, you know, I know we're talking about data, but you also talk about communication linkages in your report too, right? So absolutely. No matter how much the DOD invests in sensors, processing power, C2 centers, or frontline assets, none of it is going to really matter without the ability of robust, rapid, and resilient space-centric communications. Just consider the critical role that the MILSATCOM backbone today is providing in support of real-time, remotely piloted aircraft all around the globe. Now, let me be clear. This is not a new mission for the space community, but it instead builds upon decades of experience in this realm. The reality is we have disparate tactical links. Think of a Link 16. And the services are currently working on their disparate pieces of the JADC2. And so you can quickly see that we can become just as disconnected as a fourth gen and fifth gen aircraft trying to talk if we don't have someone or something being able to make sure that all of that is integrated. Now, currently, when we talk about MILSACOM, again, what they're providing today is a Cold War era developed architecture. It's very good at what it does, but it's not going to be able to take on the amount of data over the global range that we're going to need that data transported at the speeds that that data needs to be transported to be operationally relevant. So how do we start to move from what we have in today's MILSATCOM world into what tomorrow JADC2 architecture needs to be? Well, the SDA is starting to look at that, the Space Development Agency. They're starting to come up with a proliferated low-Earth orbit satellite that's going to integrate all those different tactical networks that we have out there and knit that into a mesh network that they're calling the transport layer. Now, when I talk to the folks over at the SDA, they view the transport layer primarily as an integration problem. The problem being integrating the multiple service efforts into a cohesive whole. Now, this is just going to be version one. It must evolve to start to enable the ability to send and receive from multiple satellites on multiple frequencies and multiple orbits, both allies, partners, and commercial. Yeah, and I do appreciate that, and especially the rundown, how you're outlining is from a technological perspective. But, the, you know, as we know, tools are only as good as how we use them. So, Doug, what are your thoughts on how we leverage this? 
I talked about this earlier, but it's really going to be in the rules of engagement and, and the protocols in play. We will now, and we already do, live in a world where the senior most strategic decision maker could reach into the cockpit or a bridge of a ship or anywhere and execute extremely tactical functions because they're connected and they have degrees of situational awareness, which will make them think, at least, that they have equal or, or better information at a given time. They probably don't, but they think they do. And we saw problems with this with remotely piloted aircraft operations in the early 2000s where you literally had you know, a senior general officer trying to talk a, a guy in an A-10 in for killing a tank, and I mean, it, it was crazy. So it's all about getting the right information to the right actors so that they can execute their appropriate part of their job. And so at the strategic level, I mean, they, it's like, you know, it's defined. They're working strategy, and they're really working the overarching war plan. That demands a certain set of information. They then go down to an operational level of control, and they're making up kind of the, the day-to-day war plans and all that. That's a different level of information. And then what that person that is really at the front lines needs is, is far more tactical. And they are aided also by battle managers. And now those guys are in, in GALS, in JSTARS and AWACS. But that, you know, it's going to evolve technologically. But the point is, if you are focused on what happens in minutes and seconds, that is one lane of kind of the feeds you need and who you need to be hooked to. If you are focused more days, weeks, that's a different chain. You're going to think differently and you're developing different products. And so these need to be segmented very carefully to respect those roles. You need all of them. This isn't saying somebody is, is more important than another. No, it's, it's an ecosystem you're trying to sustain. What you don't want to do is conflate lanes of responsibility. It'll just load up the system and it'll collapse. I mean, we've seen this in, in history. And so that discipline is going to be essential in making this system work and yielding something that actually makes us better not bogging us down. You know, it's like if you watch 20 TV stations all at the same time, you're not watching anything. It's just noise. Well, the same with all these information flows. You've got to be very careful on how you work all this. Yeah. I'll tell you, Doug, we've talked about it here. There is a, I think, just a natural thought process that, oh, man, JAD C2, in a JAD C2 architecture, I'm going to have so much data as a decision maker. I'm going to, I'm going to, it's really going to make my decision making process robust and, and I'm, I'm just going to be able to do that. That's not what JADC2 is all about, is not collecting all of the data, being able to send all of that to everybody. That's absolutely the wrong way. And, and, and your summary is, is really good. That's exactly the wrong way to look at it. We need to be able to make sure that we're getting the right data to the right warfighter so that it enhances whatever the role of that warfighter is at that point in time from an effects perspective of that. You know, Slick, think about it. When when you were in a cockpit, imagine if you were able to take in, we'll use Doug's example, you know, of 20 channels of, of, of TV. Imagine if you're sitting in a cockpit and that's the amount of data that you have flowing in. You don't have time to be able to think about anything else. What you need is the data at that point in time that enables you to be able to put that missile on the right target at the right timing and tempo to be able to get the desired effect that you want. That's what JADC2 wants to enhance at the three different levels that, that Doug was talking about. 
definitely got it. And I appreciate the breakdown, but we talked so much about space. Does this mean that these missions, this data collection and comms links will all become, you know, space executed in the future? So let's look at this from a few different views, strategic, operational, and tactical specifically. Strategic decision-making demands a level of data to yield information that will allow for big picture assessments. Operational users, users, they demand data that will yield that information that can inform plans that are developed in days and sometimes hours. Tactical users, well, they need that flow of information around an hour uh, to minutes to seconds in some instances. So we need to have an enterprise that reflects this with satellites and other assets gathering this information that are going to be more in tuned to the big picture strategic level from the data requirement. Uh, but we also have to be able to think all the way down to something like a targeting pod on a fighter or a bomber shaping those minute and second level actions. There's obviously a lot of overlap between these platforms, but the demand signals are pretty clear. So generally speaking, we have data collectors on orbit. Think manned aircraft like a U-2 or unmanned counterparts like MQ-9s. And then you combine the sensor and command and control systems with AWACS and JSTARS today. Now you can start to see that picture a little bit. Then the mission aircraft, they have their own sensors as well. So if you have to look at that list, it's really clear that a current model depends on getting a lot of aircraft over the enemy territory to get the insights we want for all the levels of war. Now, aside from fifth-gen aircraft like F-35s or F-22s and B-21s, that's really not a solid future bet. Most of our airborne sensors are going to be driven back far from where we want them to collect. So that's going to demand a new path, which is why we think more sensors in space offers a very unique value proposition. If we assume we can flood the zone with existing airborne systems like we had done in the past 20 years, we're going to be sadly mistaken. I talked about it a little bit earlier. We need to be able to have the sensor capability to see not only beyond the enemy's front lines, but deep into their territory, as well as at the same time being able to balance some of the force protection and defense requirements that we're going to need for forces that are outside of those areas. So we have to look at it from a holistic perspective. Tim, you know, I, I did tee this up in the intro, but I've got to ask you, why is a sound strategy regarding offensive and defensive space so important when it comes to operating the uh, JADC2 functions in space? Yeah. And this is obviously the one piece of the paper that people can latch on and say, oh, look at now we're going to talk about space weapons and, and so on and so forth. We know that this is important. Guess what? So does the Chinese. And so the example that, that I used before was shooting down a B-21 or sinking a carry would be a very bad day for the U.S. But taking out these critical nodes, that's debilitating. Right now, we don't have backup transport layers just laying around that we can continue on with the mission on that. What I argue is these sensor nodes on orbit, the space transport layer, it's got to be hardened. It's got to be deployed in a, in a proliferated networked way. The system resilience measures need to be underpinned all the way through development. That includes rapid reconstitution, something that we're just now starting to wrap our heads around of what that looks like. Because at the end of the day, mission assurance, that's the main objective of this environment that we're going into. So 
Even if the Space Force is defending a well-designed JADC-2 space transport layer, as an example, with robust defenses and they've got amazing space domain awareness, the Space Force still is going to need weapon platforms to defend and defeat any incoming attacks. Now, it's very easy for people to automatically just go to, oh, he's going to talk about direct ascent ASATs. Nope, I think that ASATs are a lot more than that. There can be on-orbit capabilities, right? Let's just utilize what our pacing threat has. So it, it's it's out there that the Chinese have satellites that have robotic arm capabilities. What could they be doing with that? They could rip off a solar panel or disable a satellite that's on orbit. So it's not necessarily going to be that direct ascent ASAT. Our adversaries have shown that they have the capability to do a direct ascent ASAT. So we can't just dismiss that. They've utilized, they've tested that capability. And so we've got to be able to be aware of that. So there's a lot of unpacking that comes from something that is an ASAT, if you will. However, here's the bottom line. Regardless of what that weapon is, without a credible deterrence capability, our adversaries may be willing to gamble a relatively minimal blowback to attack and permanently take out the essential U.S. space-based capabilities. Now, this is important. We do this in every domain. When someone is shooting at you, you must be able to shoot back, and the ability to self-defend is an inherent right when it comes to any domain that we're fighting a war in. So we've got to be able to get beyond the point of, nope, we're not going to have any offensive weapons or we're not going to, it's only going to be defensive. We have to look at it from a full spectrum of what we need to be able to defend and if needed, defeat our adversaries, both on orbit and terrestrial. Again, you know, we talk about this in, in the paper a little bit and some of the different discussions that I've had on this. It's not unforeseen that we could see a B-21 taking out a Chinese direct ascent ASAT on the ground. If intelligence drives us that way and we can get that level of intelligence, we don't need to wait for that to go on orbit so that we can take care of it. Again, these are things that when we talk about ASAT, that is an all domain capability as well. I just want to jump in here. I think there's a piece of what Tim is saying that's really important for folks to understand. We didn't want space to go this way towards open conflict, but the adversaries voted for that to occur. So we have to respond. We didn't build battleships that were just up armored and didn't have the ability to return fire. We didn't have B-17s with ton of armor plating and didn't have the ability to shoot back in World War II. I mean, so what Tim said, you have to have the ability to shoot back. It is all about, we don't want warfare to occur in space. The best way to prevent warfare from occurring in space is to hold adversaries' assets at risk such that they're not willing to wager those. And so it deters conflict. That is a good end objective. And if we have to go to war up there, then look, we've got to have viable options. But it's actually all about how do we avoid having outright conflict up there. And that takes a very strong hand of capabilities. And we need to get serious about developing them. I mean, we, this happened very fast. And, and we are behind the curve right now. 
just for folks that have not listened to previous podcasts where we talk about warfighting in the space domain, right? From Earth to space, space to space, and, and space back to Earth. I mean, those are the three kind of main areas that we see this engagement and really put that into the space domain. So Tim, I just want to ask you, you know, it's super important stuff. Anything else to add in this regard? There sure is. There's one piece that will underpin, especially when we talk about understanding what is happening on orbit in particular, and that is space domain awareness. That's a lot more than just situational awareness. The U.S. Space Command commander calls it the command's top priority. So what is the difference? So we've been tracking, and, and, and you hear Space Force leaders continually go out and, and they talk about the different thousands of items that we're tracking every day that are on orbit from small bolts to space gloves to you name it that's up there to all of the junk that the Chinese have left and the Russians have left after doing their direct descent ASATs. So we're tracking all of that stuff. That's space situational awareness. We know where it is. We track it. If there's any change to it, we can update it. And that's very important if I am a satellite operator, whether I'm commercial or government or military, whatever the case may be, it's important to be able to know that I've got a bolt that's flying close to my satellite. I've got to be able to do something to react to that. Wonderful. Space domain awareness, it's a totally different creature in itself. That requires not only the mapping of the physical location of the objects that are on orbit, but we have to understand, and this is from both friendly and malign actors, the intent of those assets. So I alluded to it earlier, right? The Chinese have capabilities on orbit that, that have robotic arms or there's uh, satellites within satellites or there's all kinds of different capabilities that we're seeing our adversaries start to put on orbit. We need to not only know where that's at, that's a very important aspect, right? One might call that step one, but we also have to understand what is the capability of that asset? What's the intent of that asset as it's getting close to one of our satellites on there. So it's understanding all those pieces and parts. That is harnessing a lot more than situational awareness. That's taking intelligence and putting them directly in that so that we've got intelligence-led, threat-based assessments going on of what we need to be able to have. That's going to enable what are we going to do in reaction. So is it going to be something that has to be offensive and we need to to defeat something on orbit? Or is it something as simple as, yep, we can maneuver out of the way of that because we can do that in a timely way. So it gives that assessment to the commander to be able to make sure that he or she understands what action they need to take to the adversary. Well, Tim, I've got to ask you then, what is it going to take to make all of this vision into a reality? Yeah. So we're starting down that road now, but I think we need to take a crawl, walk, run approach to it, quite frankly. SDA, they're getting after it from that first version of starting to put up a transport layer. They're going to put up a tracking layer. Again, they've got a great model that they're getting after right now of being able to take things from drawing boards, if you will. I know I'm oversimplifying that, but from drawing boards to getting on, on orbit, you're talking now a small window of time, two years or so. That's unheard of in any acquisitions, let alone a space acquisitions program, quite frankly. So that's what we need to be able to do. But we need to take those first versions, be able to accept that they are not going to be everything to everybody in that first set of assets that we put up there. 
And how do we evolve from that? How do we start to trust the information flow? How do we start to trust the data links that we're having? How do we start to develop as Doug alluded to those filters, if you will, for the data so that again, we're not overwhelming anyone warfighter with too much data, but we're starting to dial in. What is the data that this warfighter needs? What is the data that a ship driver needs versus the data that a fighter pilot needs and, and start to just evolve that. But that's got to be in a crawl, walk, run approach so that we don't get to the point where we quite frankly are today, where we just put up newer versions of the same technology. And I think there's another piece like that's really important here. We need to be realistic about what exists today in operational capability and capacity versus what is a hope for the future. And I think we need to be very careful about not gapping key roles and missions because we believe in the theory of something playing out in future years, but that might leave us high and dry for several years until that becomes operational. And obviously, we know with new military technology, on time, on budget is always a great plan, but, you know, does that always come through? So here's an example of what I'm talking about. We basically ran J-STARS, E-8, out of lifespan. They're all 1960s build, 707s. We've flown them hard, you know, last 20 years of combat operation. They're done physically. We know that we're going to take their mission and migrate it to space, and that is, is the plan. However there is a pretty significant multi-year gap between we can have the operational capability to really do that, figure out the entire supporting enterprise, and those airframes literally just sunsetting, and, and we got nothing. Now, the Air Force is taking a different approach, and that's why you actually see it buying the E-7 aircraft, which is to replace the AWACS, which does the Airborne Sensor and Command and Control mission, whereas JSTARS is, is ground-focused. That's one where they're doing a gap filler, and they're basically saying, we think this will all go to space at some point in time. However, we're not quite there yet. Let's get another airborne asset that can execute in a fashion similar to AWACS. It's going to be some better tech, but fundamentally, it's, it's similar in the model. And it's going to gap fill us. And that is very, very important because innovation does not work well at the point of a gun. You've got to allow time to allow learning to occur, allow for some successful failure, so to speak, that we try things, it doesn't work, but we learn from it and the next version's better. And so immaculate execution, I think, is going to be too high risk. We need to really plan for, like Tim said, crawl, walk, run, which means hold capabilities in place until you know the next thing is there for you. All right. Well, here is the big question. How much is all this going to cost? So yes, like that great question. A lot. Quite frankly, there's no doubt this is going to be an expensive and complex program. But the opportunity cost of ignoring the threat and the overall impact of U.S. forces and warfighting capabilities is far greater. It's cheaper to do it right the first time because, quite frankly, we're not going to get a second chance at this. We will just lose. Uh, that is a great point, and we're at the end of the time block here. But, Tim, I just got to say thanks so much, first and foremost, for taking the time to uh, join the Mitchell team and tackle this right on. And, Doug, you had mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, first thing that you asked Tim to do is essentially uh, boil the ocean. So the good thing is, obviously, we picked somebody good because it didn't run from the challenge and started answering the hard questions. So, Tim, can't say thanks enough for having you here uh, at Mitchell and for the first time on the podcast. Hey, Slick, I greatly appreciate it. I look forward to more of these in the future. Yeah. Doug, thanks again for always being here. I really appreciate it. Take care. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. 
I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.